content warning. The following episode includes detailed discussion of illicit drug use, prescription drug use, and both legal and illicit drug addiction. Listener discretion is advised. My husband Chuckles and I live in a house that sits on a decent-sized lot, much like the other homes in our quiet Cincinnati neighborhood. No, we're definitely not rich. The cost of living in most mid-sized Midwestern cities is pretty low. And that part of living in the Midwest is great. But one of the trade-offs is having awful house reps and terrible human contenders like Steve Shabbat and Jim Jordan representing us. Anyway, because of the size of our lawn, and since we don't really have room to store a decent mower, we hire people to mow it in the summer, usually guys looking for odd jobs. A few years ago, we had this one guy mow our lawn, a local guy in the neighborhood. He charged a reasonable rate, got the job done, and was very enthusiastic about getting our repeat business. And it worked out very well, at least for a while. Well, one night, it was around 11 p.m., and Chuckles and I were relaxing as we normally do on our computers playing video games. Yeah, we're nerds. Then we heard a strange noise. Who the heck mows their lawn at this time of night? Oh, wait, that's our lawn. So Chuckles went outside to see what was going on. Come to find out, our lawn guy was at our house mowing our lawn. We didn't call him to come mow, especially at that time of night. The guy was acting strangely. Besides the fact that he was mowing our lawn at 11 o'clock at night, he just seemed off. A lot like the people we'd seen around town who were dependent on opioids. Just that strung out look. Maybe he was sick. The lawn guy said he wanted to mow our lawn because he really, really needed the money. I think Chuckles told him he needed to leave, which he complied with. And the next day, the guy was no longer our lawn guy. I'm not a drug expert, so I don't know for sure if the lawn guy was addicted to opioids or other drugs or not. Either way, I truly hope he's okay, and whatever was happening in his life, he was able to get the help he needed. In the last few years, as many Americans still use controlled substances, and a number of negative effects have manifested from the various drug crackdowns over the better part of a century, it has become more acceptable to question the wisdom of the drug war and to ask, have we lost the war on drugs? If we have lost the war on drugs, is it because we fought it by chasing boogeymen while even bigger culprits in fostering addiction in America continue operating unfettered? I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. Welcome to Potstirer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. This is the final episode in the America's Drug War series. Thank you very much for coming along for the ride. In previous episodes, I've discussed a brief history of the war on drugs in the United States going back to the early 20th century, discussing top influential figures in the drug war, from more well-known ones like Presidents Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, to not-so-famous ones such as the first director of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Harry Anslinger. I've also touched on a number of influential anti-drug laws, such as the Harrison Tax Act of 1914, the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, the Controlled Substances Act, and the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, among many others. And we've gotten a bit into the drugs that the drug war has targeted and some of the effects the drug war has had on these groups. I wasn't able to cover every single detail. I know that theaters of the war on drugs were fought outside of the U.S., primarily by the CIA, and that it negatively affected many countries across the world, most notably in Latin America, affecting immigration patterns even today, 
among so many other things. I really couldn't cover that in as much detail. Perhaps at some point in the future, I may get into that more in depth. I'm sure there were even details domestically I missed, but even when it comes to what I've been able to discuss in the series, we need to ask ourselves, has America's drug war actually made society better? I'll discuss that more in depth in a moment. But first, let's talk a bit about the state of the drug war in more recent years. There has been a movement towards less restrictive policies on cannabis for decades now. In part one, I discussed early opposition to the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 and the approach of Harry Anslinger, particularly by Dr. Henry Smith Williams. Organizations have also been established over time to fight for cannabis legalization. One of the most prominent ones is the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, or NORML. NORML was established in 1970 by attorney Ken Strope through seed money from late Playboy founder Hugh Hefner's nonprofit, the Playboy Foundation. NORML has been one of the most established and well-funded because of this connection. From NORML, Factions spun off and created additional cannabis legalization advocacy groups, such as the Drug Policy Alliance and the Marijuana Policy Project. Cannabis advocates have been pushing for legalization on a couple of different fronts, for medical purposes and for recreational purposes. And the battle for legalization has been fought on both fronts since the 1970s. On the medical front, California became the first state to legalize cannabis for medicinal purposes with Proposition 215, a statewide initiative, in 1996. Two years later, medical cannabis initiatives were voted on and passed in Washington State, Oregon, Alaska, and Nevada. A similar initiative was also passed in Washington, D.C. that same year, but was not implemented until a decade later. Because D.C. is an administrative district and is not a state, government decisions are overseen by Congress, with a congressional statute initiated by Georgia Congressman Bob Barr, the results of the initiative were sealed until the ACLU sued on First Amendment grounds in 1999, and the results were publicly released, showing 69% of voters approved of the Medical Cannabis Initiative. This led to additional legislation banning implementation enacted and on the books until Congress lifted the ban on medical cannabis in D.C. in 2009. The recreational cannabis front has been a bit more difficult, but has recently found its stride. In the 1970s, 11 states voted to decriminalize cannabis possession. Decriminalization means that in those states, those caught in possession of it, usually a small amount, may only be fined instead of sentenced to jail or prison time, but could pull harsher sentences for larger amounts or for repeat offenses, depending on the state. But after the 1970s, with the Reagan iteration of the drug war, the decriminalization movement petered out, and decriminalization wasn't revisited until 2001. That year, Nevada decriminalized cannabis, and several other states have followed suit over the last 18 years. In 2012, Colorado and Washington State took it a bit further, legalizing cannabis for recreational purposes through ballot initiative, a number of other states have legalized cannabis as well, the latest being Illinois just this year. In all states where cannabis is legal, the legal age for public consumption and use is 21. As of this recording, it is legal for medicinal use in 33 states, 4 U.S. territories, and D.C., and legal for recreational use in 11 states, including my home state of Michigan. In 15 states, most, but not all of these, are states that allow medical marijuana, weed is decriminalized. In states that have legalized cannabis for medical or recreational purposes, they have been able to take advantage of the benefits of a legal cannabis industry that brought in $12.2 billion in 2018 alone, and, according to Newsweek, could potentially expand to $130 billion in sales annually. But, with legalization, there have been challenges. And those challenges stem from the fact that on the federal level, cannabis is still a Schedule I drug, meaning that according to the federal government, cannabis is an illicit drug with no legitimate medicinal use. This can pose a problem. 
Up until passage of the Rohrabacher Farm Amendment in 2013, which has to be renewed each year, the federal government will pursue cases against medical marijuana patients and raid cannabis dispensaries. Even after the law was passed, the government continued with the arrests and raids until a 2015 federal court decision halted this practice. Even with this, cannabis business owners face a lot of difficulty finding banks where they can open business accounts. The vast majority of bank accounts are FDIC-insured, which means that bank accounts are insured by the federal government. Because of this, few banks accept cannabis businesses as clients, and those who do run the risk of being investigated by the federal government for money laundering due to cannabis being considered illegal under federal law. The lack of access to banks leave many cannabis owners vulnerable to theft and robbery since those who don't use banks have to store their cash somewhere, which may be on site or on their person. In addition, according to the American Bar Association, bar associations and courts in states that have made cannabis legal on some level have had difficulties in recommending to lawyers licensed in these states how to approach both personal cannabis use and counseling patients on cannabis businesses and related legal issues. One of the issues that has come up in cannabis legalization is that while the criminalization of cannabis has negatively affected Black and Latino communities, the decriminalization and legalization of cannabis has disproportionately benefited white individuals and communities. The legal cannabis industry in the United States is disproportionately white, while Black and Latino cannabis business owners and founders make up only 10% combined. Recreational cannabis usage is equal across races, yet for decades it was labeled a Black drug. And along with that, the Black community in particular has been targeted in the waves of cannabis crackdowns conducted by the government over the last several decades. This has left a greater proportion of Black Americans, especially Black men, with drug-related criminal records that often make them ineligible to start cannabis farms and dispensaries, according to laws established in states that allow for either medical or recreational cannabis. This, in addition to racial disparities in access to business loans and startup funding that negatively affect potential Black and Latino business owners, have left these communities on the outside looking in to an industry experiencing a great deal of growth. There have been some measures in a few states to open up access to Black and Latino growers and sellers, but this is not across the board, and the inequalities continue. Cannabis legalization is one thing, but what about harder illicit drugs, such as cocaine or heroin? Wouldn't making those drugs legal lead to an increase in users, and therefore an increase in addicts? Johan Hari, in his book Chasing the Scream, outlines three sides to this question among cannabis legalization advocates. Some advocate keeping harder drugs illegal. Others advocate a middle ground where there would be a tier system set up to where harder drugs are in a higher tier that would require more restrictions, but would not be fully outlawed. Still, others support full legalization, regulating harder drugs similar to cigarettes or alcohol, and presumably cannabis in this scenario. Hari notes that while more people may try strong illicit drugs if made legal, which increases the pool of users who would become dependent, actual dependency is not expected to increase due to legalization. He states, quote, We still think of addiction as mainly caused by chemical hooks. There's something in the drug that, after a while, your body starts to crave and need. That's what we think addiction is. But chemical hooks are only a minor part of addiction. The other factors, like isolation and trauma, have been proven to be much bigger indicators. Yet the drug war increases the biggest drivers of addiction, isolation and trauma, in order to protect potential users from a more minor driver of addiction, the chemical hook. If we legalize, somewhat more people will be exposed to the chemical hook and drugs, but the even larger drivers of addiction, trauma and isolation, will be dramatically reduced, end quote. With the presidential administration of Donald Trump itching to turn the clock back on the war on drugs, there is a current drug epidemic, a uniquely American crisis, with the number of users second only to cannabis, with more teen users than meth, cocaine, 
and heroin combined. These drugs are much more dangerous than weed and more potent than coke. But this epidemic didn't begin in the growing fields of Latin America or anywhere else. It didn't even start with a government crackdown. Oh no, this crisis began in corporate boardrooms with the federal government giving the traffickers a bright green light. Throughout the entire drug war series, I've discussed substances that often take people away from the difficulties of their lives or help them to feel better about it, at least for a while. Music can also have that effect on people. And Ryan discusses the power of music in 33 and a third under 45, a wonderful and well done podcast on Flying Machine. New episodes are posted to our Patreon. Go to flymachine.network slash support for more. But every fifth of the month, an episode is released from the archives for public consumption. In other words, for free. This month, Ryan is releasing an episode of 33 and a third under 45 on Tegan and Sarah's The Con. This is really a fun yet introspective episode covering Tegan and Sarah, a talented sibling duo from Canada, in their breakout indie music album from 2007, The Con. Ryan is awesome, as always in this. Check it out. The public feed of 33 and a third under 45 is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to franzradio.com slash 33 and a third under 45. I'll also link to it in the show notes. And for all the wonderful podcasts of Flying Machine, go to flymachine.network slash shows. For the first three years of grad school, I dealt with intermittent tooth pain. You see, all four of my wisdom teeth grew in sideways since my mouth was too small to fit them. I didn't have dental coverage at the time, just medical. And like a lot of people, I hate dentists. So I avoided going to the dentist until the pain became so unbearable I couldn't sleep or concentrate. It didn't help that I Googled my symptoms and read that tooth pain can be a sign of heart trouble in women. Folks, WebMD is not your friend. Anyway. Eventually, I went to a dentist just off campus. This was around 2006. I paid cash, I got x-rays, and the dentist told me that all four wisdom teeth needed to go. But because of where they were positioned, they couldn't be pulled. They had to be removed by an oral surgeon. So I got a referral to University Hospital. And because it was a surgical procedure being done in a medical facility, it would be covered under medical insurance. Yay. The copay still wasn't cheap, but it still cost less than it would have if they had been pulled by a dentist. So I went in, and the procedure involved anesthesia. So they put me under, took out my wisdom teeth, and stitched up the areas where the teeth once were. Then they prescribed me a bunch of Percocet, which is an opioid pain reliever. I couldn't get it filled at the school pharmacy because they didn't carry opioids, but I was able to get them filled at a pharmacy just off campus. The thing was, just after the surgery, even with sutures in my mouth, I was in less pain than I had been in the months leading up to the surgery. I did take one of the Percocet the day of the surgery because it had been prescribed, but it made me feel loopy and I didn't think I needed something that hardcore. So I took over-the-counter painkillers the rest of my recovery and pitched the rest of the Percocet. Two years ago, I had major eye surgery to control a chronic condition. Quick warning, I'm going to describe a detail of this procedure that might make some people squeamish. If that's you, skip about seven seconds. Like the oral surgery, I needed to be given anesthesia and required sutures to my eyeball. The pain management involved in that was Tylenol or ibuprofen. Not even the good stuff like Tylenol 3. Regular Tylenol or regular over-the-counter ibuprofen. That was it. I probably didn't need anything stronger, to be honest, but I just found it odd, given that this was a somewhat invasive surgery. I wonder, though, if the different pain management plans for these procedures were a reflection of the change in philosophy of the medical profession due to the drug epidemic that has grown over the last 30 years. Up until the mid-1980s, 
the use of prescription opioids was limited and heavily controlled due to fears and stigma surrounding opioid addiction, since prescription opioids were chemically similar to heroin and other illegal opiates. Up until the 1950s, even cancer patients were not prescribed opioids until they were terminal and extremely close to death. After the 1950s, a greater acceptance for using opioids to treat cancer pain grew, but chronic pain from other sources was viewed much differently. In the 1970s, patients experiencing chronic pain were most often treated with surgical procedures, nerve-blocking operations, and other methods that didn't involve prescribing drugs. Around this time, a concern was mounting among medical professionals that patient pain was being undertreated. In 1980 and 1986, respectively, two pieces published in academic journals were published that made the case that opioid addiction was extremely rare. I say pieces because neither were full-fledged research articles. The 1980 piece was a letter to the editor that did not cite corroborating research, while the 1986 piece was a retrospective review of 38 patients with chronic pain prescribed opioids, where only two of the 38 exhibited opioid misuse or abuse. While the second study was something, the sample was much too small in scale for the review to be taken on its own to prove opioids didn't have much danger for addictions. The review was also not based on research that had been replicated, but despite those drawbacks, the two articles informed the growing contention among medical researchers that opioids could be prescribed much more often and still be safe. In 1984, the National Academy of Sciences and the Institute of Medicine were brought together to explore the relationship between illness and pain, and three years later published a report that advocated for increased awareness in treatment of patient pain. In 1995, the American Pain Society, or APS, kicked off a major campaign called Pain, the Fifth Vital Sign. Now, what was the APS? It was an organization made up of not only doctors and other medical professionals, but also government, law, and industry. But it was also alleged in a lawsuit brought by the Illinois Public Risk Fund, a state workers' compensation fund, that the APS was a front for pharmaceutical companies. At the time, though, the APS helped to drive medical practices and public policy when it came to pain management. They pushed for chronic pain in patients to be taken more seriously and encouraged pharmaceutical remedies, particularly opioids, to address the pain issue. Then, in 1999, the Veterans Health Administration, or VA, also came alongside APS with their own launch of a Pain as a Fifth Vital Sign initiative. In 2000, the Joint Commission, or TJC, the nonprofit that provides accreditation for hospitals, clinics, and other health service companies, published standards for pain management. Patients given opioids tended to give healthcare providers higher scores, and not prescribing opioids for pain opened up providers to be labeled as inhumane. The TJC mandated that doctors provide adequate pain control to their patients and tied benchmarks regarding pain control to federal healthcare funding. And this was a threat with teeth, since most U.S. states recognized TJC accreditation as a prerequisite for provider licensing. Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, which is extended release oxycodone and other drug companies, influenced government policy through lobbying efforts and influenced the medical profession through sponsoring continued education courses, sending representatives to doctor's offices, and through funding patient and medical professional organizations. When undertaking these efforts, these drug companies maintained that opioids were safe, effective, and had a very low risk of dependency. In 1998 alone, Purdue Pharma spent $207 million on OxyContin marketing. The Drug Enforcement Administration, or the DEA, was created in the 1970s to regulate drugs, including their manufacture and sale, and fight drug trafficking. When we picture the DEA, we usually picture them conducting a major drug bust of illicit drugs such as cocaine and cannabis, standing near packaged bricks of coke or weed for a photo op. Now, part of their job is to regulate the use of not only illicit drugs, but legal drugs. But in the case of prescription opioids, the DEA 
as well as the Federation of State Medical Boards, issued statements promising a relaxing of regulations for opioid prescribers. With encouragement from all parties involved, doctors start feeling more at ease prescribing patients opioid medications, such as hydrocodone and oxycodone, and pain medications combining opioids with non-opioids, such as Vicodin and Percocet. They increase prescriptions of these drugs confident that long-term and less severe chronic pain could be managed with these medications without leading to dependency. And this worked very well for pharmaceutical companies, insurers, and others along the medical sector chain, netting them untold amounts of money and making them more wealthy in the process. This change in outlook in the medical profession regarding the use of opioid medications also provided an opening to pain centers, private clinics owned by corporations with connections to drug manufacturers, also referred to as pill mills, that were opened specifically so that patients experiencing pain could stop in, be seen by a medical professional, and be prescribed opioids. In the book, American Pain by John Temple, he discusses how pain centers prescribing oxycodone cropped up and spread throughout various parts of the United States. Quote, oxycodone wasn't created in Colombian jungle laboratories or smuggled in suitcases or on 30-foot go-fast speedboats. It was manufactured in pharmaceutical plants in St. Louis and promoted on highway billboards and in page after page in the back of the New Times, a free weekly newspaper in South Florida. The bigger advertisements usually showed a woman holding her forehead and wincing or a man's torso arched in agony. The ads blared, chronic pain? Stop hurting and start living. Then in smaller type, walk-ins welcome, dispensing on site. Some offered coupons or specials. One clinic's ad said nothing about pain itself and simply displayed the goods. An amber prescription bottle, dozens of little blue pills tumbling out. Florida pumped millions upon millions of doses of these narcotics, oxycodone mostly, northward, not through a major criminal organization like the cartels of Mexico, but via thousands of individuals who streamed up and down Interstate 75 or flew from the Tri-State Airport in Huntington, West Virginia to Miami International on a flight nicknamed the Oxy Express. They went to the pain clinics complaining of back pain and received a massive supply of narcotics once only available to ease the agony of a stage four cancer patient. A supply that could keep even the most hardcore junkie satisfied for a couple of weeks. A supply worth $6,000 to $8,000 in the coal patches and hollows of Kentucky, end quote. And with the increased demand for prescription opioids, the drug companies were at the ready to increase supply and the federal government continued to authorize the increases in opioid production. So from the late 90s into the early 2000s, prescriptions for opioids for chronic pain grew. In 1999, 86% of opioid prescriptions were being written for non-cancer pain. Between 1997 and 2002, prescriptions for morphine increased by 73%, hydromorphone by 96%, fentanyl by 226%, and oxycodone prescriptions went up by a mind-boggling 402%. Initially, studies noted the increase in opioid consumption, but without an increase in adverse effects. But over the course of the 2000s, studies began trickling in, finding an increase in opioid oversedation, as well as difficulty breathing and death from respiratory failure. And other side effects were being observed, such as increased sensitivity to pain, increased disability, endocrine and psychological issues, and many others. And some of these effects, particularly the increased sensitivity to pain, led to increased tolerance and opioid dependency. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, found that opioid prescriptions quadrupled over a 15-year period and deaths from opioids increased proportionally. You see, the problem was that prior to this change in how opioids were prescribed, these were used only in extenuating circumstances, such as end-stage cancer, and not for chronic or long-lasting conditions. Studies had not been done at the time to determine the effects of this class of drugs when used long-term. Opioid addiction was rapidly increasing in the United States, 
This wasn't confined to inner cities where it would be easy for politicians to demonize addicts as irredeemable junkies. This was happening in suburbs and small towns. It was happening to the Cleavers. And it was about to get a lot worse. Later in the decade, the alarm was first sounded on opioid dependency and drug companies began to feel the heat. In 2007, Purdue Pharma pled guilty to federal charges related to their marketing of OxyContin. Purdue agreed to pay a $634.5 million fine and a $19.5 million settlement to 26 states in Washington, D.C. As the scale of the opioid epidemic became apparent, the U.S. government began implementing additional regulations on opioids. The U.S. government began implementing additional regulations on opioids. In 2010, in response to the new regulations, healthcare providers began cutting back on opioid prescriptions, making it more difficult for opioid users to obtain their prescriptions. With this supply getting cut back, some dependent opioid users turned to street drugs, particularly heroin. Opioid addicts switching to heroin led to additional public health problems, including outbreaks of HIV and hepatitis B and C, as well as an uptick in babies born addicted to drugs and overdose. In 2013, overdoses began to rise, rising most sharply in 2016 due to the use of illicitly manufactured fentanyl and of other street drugs laced with fentanyl. Fentanyl is an extremely potent synthetic opioid. It is a Schedule II drug. It can be used legally under certain circumstances, generally prescribed to people who have already become used to other strong painkillers. As I mentioned in Part 3, fentanyl is what killed musical artists Prince and Tom Petty. The overdose reports, in particular, have led to more attention being paid to the epidemic by all levels of government and media outlets, and both Democrats and Republicans have run on platforms that have included addressing the opioid epidemic. Over the past three years, the Trump administration, along with state and local government, have taken a number of steps to fight the opioid crisis, including enacting several laws to expand access to opioid treatment and recovery support, a crackdown on international shipments of fentanyl and other opioids, and thousands of state and local lawsuits being initiated against drug manufacturers. The New York Times reported last month that federal investigations in New York and Cincinnati have been launched, alleging that Johnson & Johnson, Teva Pharmaceuticals, and several other drug companies failed to adequately keep tabs on the distribution of prescription opioids, leading to the drugs being abused at high rates and some of the medication getting funneled into the black market. If proven in a court of law to be true, these allegations would be in violation of the Controlled Substances Act. In the wake of the opioid crisis, the act is increasingly being used by the government to take action against pharmaceutical companies. Johnson & Johnson and Teva both deny the allegations, standing by their monitoring practices. According to Nicole Hong, who wrote the New York Times article, quote, to bring criminal charges under the statute, the government must prove that the companies or their executives intentionally avoided complying with regulations that require them to flag suspicious orders of opioid medications, end quote. Still, there's a tough hill to climb as 2 million people are estimated to be addicted to opioids in the United States, and 70,000 people died of overdose last year alone. And according to the federal government, an average of 142 people die of overdose each and every day. When researching the opioid epidemic, a question I had in my mind was why it was more likely to affect the groups that it did. Young white women, people from working class and poor suburban and rural areas. As I talked about in part four, the U.S. government, as well as mainstream media, responded to the crack epidemic in the 1980s, which was much more likely to affect Black Americans in poor urban neighborhoods, a lot differently than today's opioid epidemic. During the crack epidemic, users were framed essentially as bad people who were ruining their families, their neighborhoods, and society as a whole. But government and the press have tended to frame opioid users as victims victims of greedy drug companies and medical professionals, and a government willing to look the other way. Without saying so explicitly, because of course not, opioid users have been portrayed as victims of capitalism. But the thing is, in both epidemics, 
Users tended to come from unstable financial and social circumstances, living in communities that were feeling the effects of economic downturns, and were more likely to work in blue-collar jobs, many of which are extremely labor-intensive. So these were commonalities, but why would opioids be the drug of choice of lower-income white Americans living in suburbs and small towns? I tried to find more information about why the opioid epidemic has affected who it has specifically, but I wasn't able to find much in the way of why. No study results broadcast on the evening news about if unwed parents, fatherlessness, or welfare led to opioid addiction. But here's the thing. It's come up time and time again in the earlier episodes in this series that drug laws up until now and the propaganda surrounding them primarily targeted racial and ethnic minorities. Black Americans most consistently, but also during different times in American history, Asian and Latino immigrants, as well as Latino Americans. The reason to initiate and continue the drug war was to protect us from the other. But while the government focused on sending Black and Latino men and women to prison for drug offenses and decimating urban families and communities, the same government was greenlighting another drug problem, damaging white families and communities in the suburbs and out in the country, as well as the Native American population, which unfortunately little has been written about that aspect of the opioid crisis, so I couldn't really expand on this. But in general, in the case of the opioid epidemic, because so many of the users are white, there was no other to point to because the one group that has been protected more in the United States than its white majority has been big business. Today, people are beginning to discuss the wisdom of the war on drugs. Have the infinite resources that have been invested in the drug war all been for nothing? You're hard-pressed to find anyone who claims the drug war has been completely won. However, the drug war has had a great deal of support among politicians themselves, and those who have had a hand in shaping public policy. William Bennett, who was Secretary of Education under President Reagan and was President George H.W. Bush's drug czar, has argued that the war on drugs has worked. Speaking about this in 2005, noted this was before the height of the opioid epidemic, he noted that from 1979 to 1999, drug use in the U.S. had decreased by 10 million users and the way drug use was being depicted in the media was less sympathetic. Bennett strongly opposed cannabis legislation and also defended the law enforcement approach to the drug war that gave us mass incarceration. Quote, Most people are in prison for multiple offenses, including illegal drug use. Some people plead down to a drug use conviction when a lot of other charges brought them to the prosecution in the first place. Very few people are in prison for drug use alone. End quote. However, I haven't been able to locate any statistics shedding any light on Bennett's assertion. In any case, Bennett contended that the decrease in the use of drugs meant that punitive measures worked. Bennett's view was largely echoed by Joseph A. Califano Jr., who was Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare under President Jimmy Carter. Also interviewed in 2005, Califano agreed with Bennett, believing the war on drugs was beneficial and opposed cannabis decriminalization, arguing that cannabis was harmful to children and teens and that it was a gateway drug. Even though there are several studies available disputing the assertion cannabis is a gateway drug, I'll link to that in the show notes. Califano also supported the emphasis on fighting the drug war with law enforcement, but also felt that education on the dangers of illicit drugs was also important. But there have been a number of voices that have said that the war on drugs has been a failure. The Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank, published a policy paper in 2017 arguing that the war on drugs has been lost. Authors Christopher Coyne and Abigail Hall make the case, using economic analysis, that the drug war in the U.S. has led to a mass incarceration issue and an increase in drug overdoses, has led to the proliferation of international drug cartels, and undermines the war on terror. The drug war since the Nixon era has cost over $1 trillion and costs U.S. taxpayers $51 billion to fight each year. 
Quain and Hall point out the increase in drug arrests from nearly 581,000 people in 1980 to over a million and a half people in 2014, as well as that half of current federal inmates are incarcerated for drugs. In addition, past drug convictions often limit economic prospects, including higher education, since it can negatively affect financial aid eligibility as well as future job opportunities. And because Black and Latino people are arrested at substantially higher rates than white people, despite similar rates of drug use and drug selling, the drug war has a disproportionate impact on these communities. They contend that the war on drugs leads to an increase in drug overdoses because of lack of regulation, mean, because lack of regulation means little to no quality checks on the drugs being sold, but also means that without these checks, some dealers aim to make the product more potent so it can be worth more. So if you're an illicit drug user, you don't know what you're going to get. And there's no legal reporting mechanism should users receive a low-quality product. You can't report your dealer to the cops if you get some questionable drugs because you're pretty much asking to be arrested yourself. And this can play out in a very tragic way. In August of 2016, Cincinnati experienced 174 reported drug overdoses in six days. And at the time, Cincinnati averaged about 20 to 25 reported overdoses a week. Since then, the area has experienced periodic spikes, not to the same scale, but still higher than average, and generally, though not always, in the summer months. Why? Heroin, but not just normal heroin, heroin laced with fentanyl. This powerful drug was added to heroin being sold in the Cincinnati area in the summer of 2016. And because users weren't aware that their heroin wasn't just heroin, it led to a number of overdoses. And the subsequent overdose spikes appear to be caused by the same issue, heroin laced with other drugs such as fentanyl. The idea is, of course, to give users a more powerful high that would increase the chances of them coming back and buying the same product from the same dealers but it also meant that the users couldn't gauge properly how much they actually needed to get high and what their bodies could tolerate. Point and Hall also point out that illicit drugs lead to proliferation of violence in international drug cartels. When disputes occur, since there's no regulatory, criminal, or civil route to take when business-related conflict occurs, it's up to those involved to solve these issues on their own. And the easiest, most persuasive way to do so under those constraints is violence. In addition, the high risk that comes with illicit drug trafficking, simply due to the fact that it is illicit, tends to keep more level-headed individuals out of the game and attracts those who are more willing to take risks and do whatever it takes, even to the point of violence, to succeed. Because there is a comparatively small percentage of people willing to take those risks, It provides a greater incentive to form a monopolistic network, which is pretty much what a cartel is. And once a cartel takes hold of certain territories, they become entrenched and are self-perpetuating. In addition, Hoyt and Hall note that $8.4 billion have been spent on executing counter-narcotics efforts in Afghanistan, spread across several U.S. government departments, including the Department of Defense, Department of Justice, State Department, and the DEA. But despite this spending and increased anti-drug presence in Afghanistan, which has occurred alongside the forever war in the country that has been going on since right after 9-11, there's very little, if anything, to show for the billions in spending. Cultivation of opium poppy, which is used to make heroin and other natural opiates, has tripled between 2002 and 2013. And now, Afghanistan produces about four-fifths of the globe's illicit opium. And not only that, Afghanistan's opium economy is controlled by the Taliban. Great. Hari argues that the war on drugs has led children and teens having more access to drugs instead of less. He cites a conversation he had with a former narcotics officer named Fred, who worked undercover to arrest drug dealers in the 1970s. Hari writes, quote, One day in the early 1970s, he had been waiting in the lot outside a shopping mall to buy marijuana, PCP, heroin, and meth, and then bust the dealer's ass 
A kid approached him. He seemed to be about 12 years old. Mr. Mr., he said. Do me a favor. Could you buy me a bottle of wine in the liquor store? Fred kicked him in the ass and snapped. Get out of here. He went back to waiting for a drug dealer so he could make his buy and make his bust. But that's when the realization hit me, he told me. I'm saying to myself, this kid needs me to get him a bottle of liquor where he could go get any drug he wants in the parking lot without me. What was better regulated, the liquor or the drugs in the parking lot? It was an epiphany. What is this all about? The insight stayed with him as a source of doubt for years, and it made him come out in the end for legalization. Nobody in my nephew's schools, it occurred to me as Fred talked, is selling Budweiser or Jack Daniels. But there are plenty of people selling weed and pills. Why? Because the people who sell alcohol in our culture have a really strong incentive not to sell to teenagers. If they do, they lose their license and their business. The people who sell other prohibited drugs in our culture have a really strong incentive to sell to teenagers. They are customers like everybody else. If we legalize, there will be a barrier standing between our kids and drugs that do not exist today. This isn't theoretical. The societies that have tried this have shown it to be the case. Some 21% of Dutch teenagers have tried marijuana. In the United States, is 45%, end quote. And anecdotally, I can see this. Earlier in the series, I shared that in high school, I dated a guy who was a drug user who I called Austin. We were both under 21 at the time, as were all of us who hung out together. I didn't do drugs, and I didn't personally know where to get them. But if I'd wanted to do some kind of drug, like, say, weed, I could probably ask Austin or my friends who smoked weed where to get it, and I surely could have gotten hooked up with it. Austin almost always had some kind of drug on him, usually weed or shrooms. But cigarettes or beer were another story. We'd have to find some willing stranger and bribe them to go into a party store and get them for us. And to be honest, those times were few and far between because it was a huge pain. And this was in the 90s rather than the 70s. I would imagine that it's not much different now, particularly in places where cannabis isn't legalized. Are we going to see drug legalization in the U.S. in the future? That's a very good question. If we look at cannabis, it's trending that way, albeit slowly, with most states with medical cannabis and a small but growing number of states legalizing medical cannabis. And there are some states and communities that allow for CBD oil, a component of cannabis that doesn't leave you under the influence and is believed to have some medical benefits. Stranger Still had a great episode earlier this year focusing on CBD specifically. It was awesome. You should definitely check that out if you haven't already. The huge hurdle is that on the federal level, cannabis is still a Schedule One drug. And while most Americans are trending towards legalization, government officials are not. The Trump administration has discussed ramping up the worst elements of the drug war, especially when Jeff Sessions was still the attorney general. Still, over time, as more millennials are elected to office, opinion in the halls of government may change, though lobbying by drug companies who have a stake in keeping cannabis illegal may remain a major hurdle. As for the legalization of other drugs, that's a more difficult proposition. Opinion is divided even among supporters of cannabis legalization, and it's hard at this point to see how that will happen in the U.S. anytime soon, if at all. But I'm not going to say it's completely impossible. Julian Castro, HUD secretary under President Barack Obama and current 2020 presidential candidate, has said that if he were president, he would consider the prospect of broader drug legalization or at least de-emphasizing enforcement. While this is coming from one candidate among many in a crowded, though a little less crowded lately, Democratic field, the fact that this is even being mentioned by a candidate for a major party may shift the Overton window so that broader legalization could be possible in the future. When I started this series, I fell on the side of cannabis legalization, but of keeping harder drugs illegal. But the more I explored this topic, the more I've become convinced that broader legalization could be a net benefit to society. As it is, 
the war on drugs has been fought for political ends and has led to a systematic funneling of black Americans and other marginalized groups through the criminal justice system, inflicting damage on families and communities that last generations. But it hasn't really saved America. And the reason for that is what drugs are legal and what drugs are not aren't exactly correlated with safety. Alcohol kills nearly 90,000 people annually, not including the nearly 10,000 people killed each year in drunk driving accidents. Yet alcohol is legal. And making a drug illegal doesn't keep people away from it. It just makes it harder for government to regulate. Does this mean I'm saying drugs are safe? Oh no. Many drugs, both legal and illegal, have adverse effects related to its chemical makeup and its effects on the human body. Giving people well-studied and honest information about those effects instead of propaganda helps to empower people with the information needed to make decisions for themselves. Let's not link drug use with morality. There are some people who use drugs who see real benefits and, depending on the drug in question, can still be functional and productive. I get that drug addiction can also negatively affect various areas of a person's life and that of their families, and can also endanger their lives, depending on their drug of choice. And all of that should be taken seriously. That said, if dependency or addiction does result, providing treatment instead of judgment, shame, or legal entanglement, no matter what the drug, allows more people to deal with their issues and still go on to live healthy, fulfilled lives. We are now at the end of the America's Drug War series. Thank you for listening throughout, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Eh, maybe enjoyed isn't the word, but I do hope it has been informative and thought-provoking. The next episode will be the annual War on Christmas episode. This is the third one I've done, and I'm super excited. I hope you are too. That will be out in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. If you subscribe, which is for free, you can get new episodes once they come out so you don't miss out. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us five stars and leave a review. And I'm forever tweeting, so follow me on Twitter at PotstirerCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.